To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship before him, shall bow to all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. Well, as Matt said at the beginning of the service, um, 
I want to talk about what happened in Charlottesville, but I want to talk about it at the end of the message and really as an application of the message, which is kind of a cool reality for us. You know, there have been things that have happened in our city, things that have happened in our nation, things that happen around the world at various times that as a church we felt like, you know, we really need to speak at this or to this particular topic. And what's been cool is, even though we have planned out our preaching schedule months and months and months in advance, or maybe because of that, you know, we've run to the schedule to go, well, good grief, what's our passage for the week? Because is this going to work? And, uh, and once again, uh, it works, and works marvelously well, which is kind of comforting to me, actually, as I come to it. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 22 together, which Elizabeth just so beautifully read. Like, if I could get her on my Bible app as the reader, it would be fantastic, right? I mean, it just ruins you for anybody else. But, but we're going to look today at Psalm 22. And here's what you need to know going into Psalm 22. It was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ was even born. And it was written 300 years before crucifixion existed. Remember that. Because I think what we've got, in fact, I know what we have in Psalm 22, is a psalm in which David, by the power of the Spirit of God, is enabled supernaturally to look prophetically into the future and not just to see the suffering and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to so identify with him that what he gives to us in Psalm 22 is not his own words, but it's the prayer and meditation of Jesus himself as he suffers and dies on the cross for our sin. And then the celebration of Jesus as he's raised from the dead. And I know that if you're not a believer in Christ and maybe you just kind of wandered in here, that sounds crazy to you. And I get that. I really do. But when you lay this psalm down next to the story of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you keep in mind that no one in David's world even knew what crucifixion was when he wrote it a thousand years before the crucifixion occurred, you got to kind of go, yeah, man, you know, I, I just think that's what we've got here. There really is no other good explanation. And here's what Psalm 22 does, and this is why it applies today. Psalm 22 answers finally and definitively a very important question for all of us. And what is the question? It's the question of, does God really answer our prayers? And here's why I say that, because Jesus prays. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for deliverance just before he's arrested and his sufferings began. But he prays here too. Lord, deliver me. And then he dies on the cross. So did God answer his prayer? Or did he not answer his prayer? Does he answer our prayers? Psalm 22 begins like this, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. And the doe of the dawn, just for those of you who are curious, I think was probably most likely just a song that they all knew in that day and that David set this psalm to the tune of. So to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, and now listen to the voice of Jesus coming out of the pen of David and receive it that way. We read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you go forward a thousand years and when you go to the New Testament and you read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, what does he say from the cross? Well, one of the statements, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question isn't whether or not he said that. The question is, why in the world did he have to say that? The answer to that is simple, because he's prayed for deliverance, and he's realizing as his life is ebbing away, it's not coming, at least not on the cross. 
And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, he says, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And I realized as I was working on this that none of us have ever been actually literally crucified, but here's what most of us at least have experienced. We have experienced, and listen to the word, excruciating circumstances in life. The words are related And we've experienced excruciating circumstances in life, guys, where we have cried out to God for a deliverance, let's be honest, that at least at times never came. There are people here today who cried out for deliverance in their marriage and now they're divorced. There are people here today who have cried out for their wayward kids and they're still out there somewhere. There are people here today, lots of us have cried out for sick loved ones who then have died. There are people here today who have cried out to God, save my business, and then it failed. And what do we think? What are we thinking? What are we wondering in that moment? Because I think it sounds just like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what do we do? Because it's human nature. We say, well, Lord, if you've forsaken me, I guess I can forsake you. You've been unfaithful to me, I can be unfaithful to you. If you're not going to listen to me, fine. Then I'm not going to listen to you. And that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus does. He is dying on the cross. A death that he has not earned. It's completely unjust. His life is ebbing away. He's realizing that the deliverance from the cross, at least, is not coming. And what does he do in that dark and desperate moment? He begins to meditate on God. He says this, verse 3, Yet, even though I'm dying and feeling forsaken by you in this moment, here's what I know to be true about you. You are holy. And in fact, Jesus says, and then he uses a very important word picture. He says, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Why is that so significant? Because it's a picture of the people of God gathered together in the temple of God, and they're all worshiping God, but why are they worshiping Him? For answering their prayers for deliverance, for doing for them the very thing that Jesus here is longing for God to do for him. And so he says, yet even though I'm dying and feeling forsaken by you in this moment, here's what I know to be true. You are holy. In fact, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel who is worshiping you for answering their prayers for deliverance. And then he begins to recount God's faithfulness. For in you our fathers trusted, he says. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried in their dark and desperate moments and were rescued In you they trusted, and we're not put to shame. So what is Jesus doing? Because it's really instructive for us. In his dark and desperate moment, he is pulling up out of his heart all of the things that he's been storing up in his heart over a long period of time about the Lord his God. And where did he find all of this stuff? In God's Word. Why do you do personal worship? Why do you come and and, and listen to the Word of God taught? Why do you take classes and, and daily digest, hopefully, the Word of God, depositing it into your heart for many, many, many wonderful reasons, not the least of which is so that when your dark and desperate moments come, it's there for you. And the Spirit of God will reach down and say, I know you are tempted to doubt your God. I know that you think that He's unfaithful, but remember this, and remember this, and remember this, and remember this. And remember this, what does Jesus do? Because he's, he's telling us what to do. He encourages himself from the word of God. And then he returns, however, to his own condition in verse 6. When he says this, he says, But I am a worm and not a man. 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. So clearly his deliverance won't come from them. In fact, he says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths or sneer at me. They shake or wag their heads at me. And notice what they say to him. In their mockery, they say he trusts in the Lord. So then let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. And here again, if you're not careful, you'll forget you're in the Old Testament. Because when you get to the New Testament, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39, that as Jesus hung there on the cross, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, there it is, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So the chief priest and the scribes and the elders mocked Jesus, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And now listen to this part, he trusts in God So then let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. How do you explain that? So then what does Jesus do in the midst of this mockery? Well, we find it in verse 22. He strengthens himself once again, but notice what he strengthens himself this time with. It's remarkable. He says in verse 9, Yet you, meaning you, O God, are he who took me, when? From the womb. You made me trust you where? At my mother's breast when I was a baby. On you I was cast when? From my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So how is he strengthening himself in the Lord now? He's strengthening himself from the teaching and training of his godly parents. Oh, wow, the power of a parent. It is absolutely, overwhelmingly, amazingly powerful. Makes a big difference. You know, I know that not all of us have had the advantage of growing up in Christian homes, totally get that, but I'll tell you what we do all have the opportunity to do if the Lord blesses us with kids, it's to give them that great advantage. And we here as a church and as a community incidentally take a vow, at least if your kids are baptized here, to help you do that, to come around you and surround you with community and with encouragement and with instruction and with training to equip you to be able to do that. That's what Rio Kids and Rio Impact and Bethany Christian School and moms and dads, these ministries that we have, what are we doing? We're equipping the parents to train their kids so that in their good times, but also in their dark and desperate moments, they'll know where to turn to. Jesus continues and he says, be not far from me, O God, with whom I've walked the whole of my life, because that's what I was led into. For trouble is near and there is none, meaning none but you to help me. And just to make his point, he now describes his enemies and he describes them in what's called zoomorphic terms. So what that means is he describes them as being like animals. And notice the animals that he uses to describe them with because they are brutal and they are powerful and they are cruel and they are deadly. He says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And then he says, then they open up their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion, which is terrifying. And then he describes the urgency of his situation. He's saying, as a result of all of this, here's how I am. And the clock is running out. He says, I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. I'm coming apart. I look inhuman as a result of all of this. My heart, he says, is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Its beat is not sure and certain anymore. It's running out of time. 
My strength, he says, is dried up like a potsherd, like a shattered clay pot. It's, it's become completely useless. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. That's a fascinating statement. Because 300 years later, after crucifixion entered into the world, 300 years after David wrote this, it became popularly known that when you die of crucifixion, you die of asphyxiation. And so, while you're on the cross, you're pushing and pulling against the nails in your hands and feet. Why? So you can relieve the pressure on the diaphragm and get a decent breath of air. And so, you gulp and gasp at air until you no longer have the strength to do that, and then you suffocate. But in the process, your mouth goes completely dry. My tongue, he says, sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then he says, for dogs, and dogs in the Bible are not things that, you know, the later cute and you put it in a purse and you go to Publix. You know, that's not, that's not what we're looking at, all right? My wife actually told me that two dogs on leashes got in a fight in an aisle at Publix. I think it was last week or two weeks ago or something, which is, that's just, that's bizarre. I don't know what to say. I, but that's not what we're talking about. Dogs were rabid. Dogs were vicious. Dogs were scavengers, and they were wild, and they hunted in packs at times. He says, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. And then he says, they have pierced my hands and feet. And again, what's so jaw-dropping about this description is that David, and for that matter, everyone else in his world at that time, has no conception whatsoever of what a crucifixion looks like, of what it involves, of what it entails, of what happens within it. None. So how do you account for that? And how do you account for what he says next? Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Here's why. Because when you're crucified, you're crucified naked. It's not just an attack on your body, it's an attack on your modesty. So he can literally see all of his person, as can everyone else. He says, they stare and they gloat over me. Now notice this, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots, they gamble, they roll the dice. And here too, if you're not careful, you'll forget and think you're in Matthew because Matthew says in Matthew 27 verse 35 that when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. I don't know, but I'm kind of thinking that David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to look forward in time and to so identify with Jesus in the crucifixion as to be able to give to us his prayer and meditation. But what is it a prayer for? It is a prayer for deliverance. And he's not delivered, at least from the cross. So then did God answer his prayer? Does he answer our prayers? Okay, we're almost there. Verse 19 Jesus says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Deliver my soul from the sword. And the sword in the Bible is representative of death. He's saying, deliver my soul from death. So there it is. My precious life, he says, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then right here, this is the pivot. Everything in the whole psalm changes. And it changes with the tense of the language. He says, you have. So it's past tense, done what? 
rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then going back to that image of all the people of God and the temple of God, praising and worshiping God for answering their prayers for deliverance, Jesus now places himself in that congregation and takes up that same anthem of worship. He says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, why? For he, meaning God, has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. And you kind of want to go, I don't know, did I miss something? Because I thought he died on the cross, and he did. So how can Jesus claim then that God did deliver him, that the Lord did answer his prayer. And the answer to that is Easter, it's resurrection. See, God did not answer the prayer of Jesus on Good Friday when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the God-man, the infinitely valuable man, willingly took upon himself all of our idolatries, all of our selfishness, all of our immaturities, all of our bigotry, all of our prejudices, Every evil thought, word, deed, motivation, inclination, past, present, and future, and then gave his life to pay the debt that we owe to God for the whole of that. The prayer was not answered on Good Friday. It was answered on Easter when Jesus was delivered from death itself, which as an aside is a really a far more profound deliverance. For had he been delivered on Good Friday, the debt would not have been paid and he would have been delivered alone. But as it is, his deliverance has become our deliverance and the deliverance of every person anywhere who cries out to him for forgiveness and salvation. So God did answer the prayer of Jesus is the point, but he answered it at a better time and he answered it in a better way, which as we talked a little bit, I think about last week, is the way that it often works for us as well. And here's the deal. What Jesus is showing us in this psalm is that when we cry out for deliverance and it doesn't come how and when we want it to and we're tempted to feel forsaken, how do we deal with that? We start pulling out of our heart the Word of God that we deposit in it daily. We open up the Word of God and we remind ourselves of who we're actually dealing with here and of his great faithfulness and of the fact that not even death itself can prevent him from fulfilling all of his promises to us and answering every single one of our prayers and we strengthen ourselves as well if we have this advantage well with the teaching and training of our parents and so then having been raised from the dead and with a foot firmly in this world and in the next Jesus gives to us the proper response to God's deliverance, and that is worship. Beginning in verse 25 and just going to the end of the psalm, he says, For from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord as his gospel goes forth. And all the families of the nations, all of the different nations, in the end, worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, but who will be raised in the end through faith in this Savior. 
posterity, he says, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And here's what they proclaim. They will proclaim that God has done it. And you say that God has done what? That God actually has answered the prayer of Jesus for deliverance. And he answered it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which stands as eternal testimony to the fact that he'll also answer your prayers and mine. So does God answer prayer? Yeah, in his way and in his time. And that's a better deal. So with that in mind, what I want to do is use those ideas. And I want to talk about the Charlottesville events. And I want to use this as an application for it, okay? And I recognize at least two challenges, probably there are 200 challenges. I'm going to talk about two that I have in talking about this. So challenge number one, it's pretty simple actually. We live in a world in which every evil, awful thing that happens is on our phone in about five minutes, isn't it? And we are all the time inundated with all kinds of evil, awful things. And so then if you want to take one evil, awful thing and talk about it and you single it out from amongst the group, there's no doubt that there will be some who go, yeah, but what about Barcelona in this case? And so I just want to say that is evil, awful, and we need to pray about that too. But I'm still just going to talk about Charlottesville. The other challenge, and I think this is by far the bigger one, is that we live in a nation that is utterly divided politically, and everybody, almost without exception, is so incredibly agitated, and all of us, almost without exception, are not mildly opinionated about any of it. And so then, for anyone, myself included, to get up and to say anything about any of these topics can be so easily misread. So if you don't know me, let me make this clear, and if you do, hopefully you know this. When I stand up here, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm not an Independent, I'm not pro-Trump, I'm not against Trump. I don't stand here as a citizen of the United States of America, though I'm very glad to be one. I come before you as a minister of the gospel and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I serve a king of which I am just one subject, and here is my job. My job is to say, here's what the Bible says, and now let's figure out how to work that out together. That's it. I've never been accused of being subtle. So please, don't hear any indirect messages in what I'm saying. I think by the time I get done, you'll realize I'm not shooting for indirect not shooting for overly direct, but I'm, I'm looking to speak very plainly. So what does the Bible say about racism? Let me give it to you plainly. It says that racism is a biblical absurdity and that it is manifest wickedness. Is that unclear? Got it? It says it from the first few pages all the way through to the last few pages. I've explained this in the past, but when you open the Bible to the first couple pages, what do you find? You find that all of us, the whole of humanity, with all of our great diversity, descends from one lump of clay. The Lord God formed the first man from whom we all came, right out of the dust of the earth, out of the soils of the ground. And I've pointed this out in the past, but I think it bears repeating. What are the colors of the soils of the ground? Let me give them to you. They're black, they're brown, they're beige, they're white, they're yellow, they're kind of reddish. They're all the colors of the flesh of men. And I really believe that's instructive in the sense that when you and I seek to elevate ourselves above anyone else based upon the color of our skin, what we are saying effectively is that our little pile of dirt is somehow more valuable than theirs. And the Bible makes it so clear that what makes us unique amongst all of the created order and all of us bear this uniqueness and the dignity that comes with it is that we are the image bearers of the Lord. 
every person. We are the image bearers of God. It is the breath of God that He has given to humanity, the whole of humanity, that gives us value and significance. When you get to the gospel in Christ, who does He die for exactly? Does He just die for one group of people? Is that the way that it works? Or does He lay down His life equally for the whole of us, for any man, woman, or child who will humble themselves before Him and say, you know what? I need what you offer, forgiveness, life, hope, joy, etc. It's for everyone. It's an all-skate, man. When you get to the end of the Bible and you look in the book of Revelation and you look at the picture of heaven, the perfect place in which sin has died and death has died and injustice has died and prejudice has died and everything that we long to see end in this world is done with and everything that we long to see live in this world is alive, fully and flourishing in a way beyond our ability to imagine. Who's there exactly? Because we're told every nation, every language, every race, every tribe, every color, every everything. It is this amazing, incredible collage of humanity that is brought together, unified around the one image of the one Son who is Jesus Christ. There is unity and diversity, and that is the universal longing of man. Everybody's trying to find it. And Jesus is like, I got this one. My church has this. We are the ones who are to put this on display for the rest of the world. So then, racism is biblically absurd, and it is manifestly and even obviously wicked. And to do anything, guys, with the universally recognized emblems and symbols of hatred, and let me be very plain, rebel flags, swastikas, and all the like, to do anything with those things, or to do anything with the universally recognized mannerisms of hatred, or the universally recognized language of hatred, other than to denounce them loudly, is wrong. It's just flat out wrong. Now, we need to learn how to denounce them as a gospel people. The gospel stands against hatred, too. The gospel stands against violence, too. The Bible comes to us and says that we are to be a Spirit-filled people. So let's review. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we must denounce them as people filled by the Spirit. And to condone, to identify with, to be indifferent about, to say nothing about those who identify with groups like white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis, that's wrong. That's wrong. And that message needs to be visibly seen in our communities. Unity and diversity. And the universal dignity of humanity needs to be championed by us. Jesus gave his life for every different kind of man. He didn't step into humanity to step on us to elevate himself. He laid his life down that he might elevate the whole of us, and that's the pattern for the whole of us, at least. We need to be different. So there you go. And what I want to do um, is something a little bit different. I want to close in a prayer, just this part of the message, and then we're going to sing a beautiful, amazing song together. 
and Matt will close us out with a benediction. But I want to do it different, so I want you guys to stand. I know we stood earlier for a prayer. Uh, And I want you to kind of reach out and hold hands and cross the aisles if you're capable of doing that. So if you're a germaphobe, you're welcome. All right? And I'm actually going to come down, and I'm going to join these guys on the end. Okay? Our Father and our God, you have taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we have sung that heaven might flood the earth. And I pray that heaven might flood the earth through us. God, we come to you confessing our own sin in the area of racism and of bigotry. I pray that your spirit would point that out in our own hearts and where it exists. He would eradicate it and he would instead give us humility and love, a passion and a desire to follow after the example of our Savior who came into this world and though he himself was persecuted, lay down his innocent life that we might be lifted up. I pray that we might lay down our lives, that we might lift up others, every different kind of other and receive them authentically as our brothers and sisters in Christ. For in Christ, that is who they are. We do lift up our nation in this time. You command us to pray for the leaders and those who are above us. And we do. We pray for unity and for wisdom. We pray for righteousness and justice. We pray for grace. We pray against partisanship. We ask, Lord, that they be enabled to authentically lead and lead well in this season of our history as a nation. And on this particular issue in particular, we lift up the people of Charlottesville and those who have been injured. We ask, Lord, that you would heal their bodies. But it's not just the bodies that need to be healed, that you would heal every aspect of their person. And we pray for all of us all over the country for whom every time something like this happens, we are injured all over again and pray that you might bring healing there too. So Lord, forgive our sin. Fill us with your spirit. Let us take up your gospel and wield it as those who are confident in the understanding that it is, in fact, the only weapon against sin and death, against racism and hate, against violence and all of these other things. And let us wield it selflessly and well and in a way that adorns and decorates your gospel and church. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.